Well, when I was a little boy, about six or seven years old, I, I remember a tradition in our family. I'm not sure exactly how full the, the tradition was, but I remember we'd attend church every Sunday morning, and then afterwards we would go out to eat at a place called Mr. Steak is where we would go. It was kind of a family restaurant, maybe like Sunrise, but you know, pick it up just a, a little bit from there. And I'm sure dinner fulfilled a couple purposes. One, it gave my mom a Sunday off. My dad wanted to do that to serve her. Um, second, though, it was also to give us an opportunity to reach out to our neighbors. Right next door, the Chachos from us uh, owned this restaurant. They were a, a Greek family. I think with the name Chacho, you have to be Greek. And I, I remember sometimes just being there at the table and Mr. Chacho would come by and allow my dad to kind of greet him. And that was a, a helpful thing. And and one of the things I remember, I remember when I was little and kind of being envious of my older sister, who was six years older than I was, and she got to order from the adult menu. And I remember for some reason she used to order teriyaki chicken, which to me sounded really good. And um, teriyaki steak, rather. It's steak, Mr. Steakhouse, right? Mr. Steak. Um, but she ordered teriyaki steak, and it looked really good to me. But anyway, there was a day when we stopped visiting the restaurant. We just didn't go anymore. And it had nothing to do with our neighbors, no conflict with there, had nothing to do with the food of the restaurant, had nothing to do with my father wanting my mother to work harder in the kitchen, had nothing to do with that, it had all to do with the blood test. Apparently, and I don't know all the details, I talked to my dad this week about some of them, but a blood test was taken and discovered that his cholesterol was like really high. And uh, some matters need to be taken hand to lower that. And so no more Mr. Steak for the Brandon household. In fact, as I can remember, um, beef was a rare commodity in our home for many years growing up. My parents did some research to figure out how to lower my dad's cholesterol level and, level, and they discovered the Pritikin diet. How many of you have heard of the Pritikin diet before? Certainly some of you. Developed by a man named Nathan Pritikin, uh, a diet... Like, you know, the South Beach diet and all these, you know, this is different. This is like um, low in, well, I'm not sure about the, I don't know anything about the South Beach diet. But there's some diets that just say, you know, eat all the meats and grease you can because don't put any carbohydrates. This is the opposite. It's low in fat, high in carbohydrates, strong emphasis upon exercise. I, I remember eating spaghetti sauce with um, no meat, but we had mushrooms instead. Uh, often we ate vegetarian ate lots of fruits and vegetables. We should have eaten more fish. My mom doesn't like fish, so we had fish only on occasion. But oftentimes, you know, we ate vegetarian. even today, I can eat vegetarian. It's not a problem. Habits developed when you're young are, are easier to keep. Well, as my father learned more about cholesterol and the hardening effects it has upon the veins and arteries, he, he's taken steps over these years to promote health in himself. He began eating oatmeal in the morning at the suggestion of his cousin, Perry um, would help cholesterol, um, apparently oatmeal helps absorb some of the cholesterol and kind of flush it out of the system a little bit. And to this day, he, he has oatmeal almost every morning and a little cup of raisin bran at night. My father, over the years, exercised consistently. He's kept his weight under control. He even takes an aspirin every night just to thin his blood just a little bit to help. And his cholesterol levels today are under control, have been so for years but they, they didn't come down because he took some pill. They didn't come down because of some special thing that they had seen. Rather, they came down just through the, the constant pattern of life. Low-fat diet, 
constant exercise, weight under control. And, and all these things were preventative of heart disease. Now, that's not saying my dad won't have a heart attack, right? If he has a heart attack next week, it doesn't disallow and annul my, my message this morning. His days are in the hand of the Lord, and he knows it. In fact, when I asked him about some of these details about the Pritikin diet and Mr. Steak and things like that, he was quick to say, but you know what, I do have this heart fibrillation, you know, this um, flutter in his heart sometimes that he has. He's talked to his cardiologist, and, but he just basically said, you know what, I'm not picture-perfect health in time God will take him. It says in Psalm 139, verse 16, In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them. And my father knows that very well. Well, this morning we are going to be looking at preventing heart disease. But we're not talking about our physical hearts. We're talking about our spiritual hearts. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. Our focus this morning is on verses 12 and 13. We... We won't get to verse 19 as I had thought. We're just going to do 12 and 13. They're so rich. Last week my message was entitled, Don't Harden Your Hearts. It came right there from verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 3. It says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And we saw last week, spent a long time looking at how the Israelites provoked Him and how they tested God in the day of trial in the wilderness. We saw how they saw the, the great manifestations and the miracles of God and how God had provided wondrously for them and yet they grumbled and complained and didn't believe His faithfulness to help them in days to come. And their hearts were hardened. And my message last week was, don't harden your hearts. Well, this week my message is entitled, Care for Your Hearts. It comes here from verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Whereas last week we looked at the command not to harden your heart, this way we're going to look at the ways in which we can prevent spiritual heart disease. My first point this morning comes in verse 12. Last week was the command and here's the cure. Verse, my first point, verse 12. Be aware of the disease. Be aware of the disease. It might seem obvious, but I state it nonetheless. In order to prevent disease, you need to be aware of the disease, Right? Don't you? In order to prevent it, you need to be aware of it. My father learned about heart disease and how susceptible he was. His first step was figuring out that there was a problem. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. The first thing that we need to do to prevent spiritual heart disease is to realize that there is a problem. We need to be aware of it. And that's the idea here of this word, take care, brethren. It comes from the Greek word blepo, which literally means to see. And what we need to do in our lives is to have our eyes wide open to see that we are all susceptible to a problem, to a disease, spiritual heart hardening, and realize there are potential dangers and to take means necessary, make, take measures necessary to avoid that disease. See, because if our eyes are closed and we're unaware of the disease, we're going to stumble into it, right? The blind man, leading a blind man, they fall off the stage and into the pit. But if you have your eyes open, you can see the dangers and can thwart them. In the physical world, it's important they're aware of diseases that exist. But think about how many awareness campaigns there are. There's lots of awareness campaigns. There is cancer awareness campaigns. In fact, even, I, I forget which week, I don't know, maybe week five in the NFL, you saw all these big husky football players. What color were they wearing? You remember? They were wearing pink. In a way, is that breast cancer awareness? I'm not sure what it was. Breast cancer awareness. So even the NFL 
gathered for this awareness campaign. Also, there's diabetes awareness campaigns. You know, people aware, hey, okay, Jay Cutler, he's got his diabetes, so let's let everybody know about diabetes, or, you know, whatever, some, some high-profile athlete, you know, uh, we're on the Bears theme today, even though the Bears are terrible, right? Where Walter Payton dies of liver disease, right? uh, raises that awareness. Or some, some famous people, awareness of disease. And today what I am doing is I'm running a spiritual heart disease awareness campaign because that's what the author of Hebrews is calling us to. He says here in verse 12, take care. Now notice this call is for all of us to take care. We read in verse 12, Take care, brethren. In other words, take care all of you professing believers who are there. None of us are exempt from this problem. None of us are like a spiritual superman who've been born on another planet to have a a different type of heart that is totally um, free from the potential of spiritual heart disease. No, there's not any of us who have hearts that are immune, including pastors and their wives. We all are susceptible to that. Spiritually, we all have high cholesterol levels and are in danger of falling away. In the physical world, there there are diseases that we don't need to worry about. Smallpox is a disease we don't need to worry about because through vaccinations, it's been all eliminated. Unless some scientist someplace has it in the vial, it's gone. Living here in the United States, we don't need to be concerned about malaria unless, of course, we're traveling to a jungle-infested area. There's some diseases that I don't need to be aware of for myself. Like, I don't have to worry about breast cancer for myself because I'm a male. I'm a man. Nor juvenile diabetes. I don't need to worry about that. And there's some other things that I do need to be worried about, though. I need to be worried about prostate cancer as I get a little bit older. And for all of you, there there are different diseases you need to be worried about. Phil Gusky has a history of Huntington's disease in his family. He needs to be worried about that. There's no history in our family. I don't need to worry about that. But all of us need to be aware of the dangers that await us with spiritual heart disease. And this morning is really a call to all of you. It says, take care, brethren. And I say, this is a serious call this morning. The danger of disease is death, but the danger of spiritual heart disease is far worse. The danger is that of falling away. You can see it there in verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. To fall away from the living God is to fall away from His presence. To fall away from the living God is to fall away from His blessing. It's to fall away from any hope of salvation. It's to be lost forever. It's to be where the beast and the false prophet are also in the lake of fire where they're tortured day and night forever and ever. That's, that's the result of spiritual heart disease. And the supreme aim of the writer of the Hebrews is to warn his readers about falling away. He warns them against apostasy, which is literally what this Greek word says, of falling away. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that apostatizes from the living God. In, in every single one of the warning passages in Hebrews, and there are five of them, <clears throat> we're in the second one. In every single warning passage in Hebrews, the exhortation is always the same. Don't fall away. It's said in different ways. It's said using different pictures and different words. But the call is still the same. In chapter 2, verse 1, we saw that the, the, the call there was we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so we do not drift away from our salvation. Don't drift away 
Chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to see it. Let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Right? There the picture isn't falling away. It's just, it's just not, not getting there. Chapter 4, verse 11, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Chapter 6, verse 6, speaks about those who have fallen away. In chapter 10, verse 26, it says, if we go on sinning willfully... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Right? To sin willfully means your sins won't be forgiven. That's what he's calling there. Transgressing Christ. There's chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Or chapter 12, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. Don't turn away from God. Don't fall short. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. Now, on the flip side of that, the exhortation to endurance comes as well, instead of falling away, the call is to persevere. You can see it in chapter 3, verse 14, which we'll look at next week. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. We see in chapter 4, verse 11, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest. You can see in chapter 6, verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Right? Persevere until the end. In fact, chapter 10, verse 36, it says, you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. In chapter 11, we see example after example after example of those who persevered in their faith. From Abel, to Noah, to Abraham, to Sarah, to Moses, to Rahab. And then he says, what more? David, Samuel, and the prophets... Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, all, all these people continued on in their faith. Chapter 12, verse 14 calls us to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Don't fall away, but persevere until the end. That's the call of our text. Listen, know that all of you are susceptible to spiritual heart disease. If you say... I don't have the disease. I don't have it. I just say this. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. A big step in the cure of an alcoholic is his confession he has a problem. A drug user will never be cured until he admits he has a problem. And you will never be saved unless you confess your disease. He says, God, I have a heart that strays. God, I need your grace to turn it back again. It's the call of our text today. And what makes apostasy, falling away, so wicked is, is where you fall away from. It says you fall away, as it says there at the end of verse 12, from the living God. See, to fall away from an idol is nothing, because an idol is nothing. To fall away from an ideology is nothing, because it's mere thought, written or produced by men. To fall away from Buddha is nothing, because Buddha is dead. But to fall away from a living God is dreadful. Because God is alive, as 1 Peter 4, verse 5 says, He is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's a living being to whom we have an account to give. He has all power to bring you to His glory and in a true life with Him forever. And He has all power to cast you into the lake of fire. And Jesus said it well, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear Him who can kill the body and can destroy the soul in hell. 
So you don't mess with a living God. Especially to the living God who's given His free offer of the Gospel to all. He's extended that call throughout all the earth. The words of Jesus have echoed every place. Right, Come unto Me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Isaiah 45 says, Look to Me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Look to Me. Come to Me. I will give you rest. God's hand is extended to all those who cry out to Him, confessing their sins, pleading mercy at the cross. The offer is free. He says, Let him who wishes take the water of life without cost. We can come and we can take that water, we can drink of that water, take of that bread of life, and eat and live forever with Jesus. God's extended that offer to us. So don't fall away. Well, you ask, what are the causes of spiritual heart disease? Well, I'm glad you asked because verse 12 tells us of the causes. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. An evil, unbelieving heart is a cause of falling away. You don't fall away from, from your faith when you're believing. You fall away when you're not believing. You don't fall away from your faith when you see the sanctifying work of God in your life. You fall away when sin gets the best of you and leads you to doubt. Those in Israel had an evil, unbelieving heart. They'd seen the wonders of God but refused to trust Him for the future. They'd experienced the miracles of God but were unpersuaded. Instead, they grumbled and complained and put God to the test. And it's no, no wonder that they fell away. In fact, it says here in verse 19 that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. See, it's their unbelief that caused them to fall away, caused them not to enter the rest. And so I say this, what's the remedy for such a condition? What's the remedy? My first point, point one, be aware of the disease... My second point is really kind of be aware of the cure, but I'm calling it this way, practice the cure. Practice the cure. So know the disease, and second, practice the cure. The cure comes in verse 13. And by the way, it's not what you might think. You might think, okay, well, unbelief and evil are what's going to pull me away. What I need to, I need to believe stronger, and I need to walk righteously. Now, that's true. You need to believe. That's, that's the only way you enter. That's the only way to sustain yourself is to continue to believe and trust in God. But that's not, that's not the cure that this passage gives. Or you might think that the remedy is get away someplace and pray. And pray really hard. And that might help. But that's not the cure that this passage gives. Or you might think it's just a hold fast like verse 14 says. I mean, how much sense would it make? Take care that none of you falls away from the living God and then skip down to verse 14 and says, hold fast the beginning of your assurance firm until the end. You might think that, that, that so you don't fall away. Hold fast and keep on pressing on. But, but that's not what the writer of the Hebrews says. The remedy for a hardened heart here is found in community. A properly functioning, believing community will help prevent evil, unbelieving hearts from taking roots in their lives. So let's look at how we ought to practice the cure. What's the cure? Right there, verse 13. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, 
so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what's the cure? Encouragement is the cure. Let's break down the verse a bit. We see there's a command and then a reason. There's a command, encourage one another, and there's a reason. So that no one of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, sin is deceitful. It deceives you going in and it deceives you coming out. Sin is like a fishing hook that, that, that a fish sees. that just dangles before the fish. You know, and the fisherman's got it. It's kind of walking in there and sees this worm going all around into the fish. That worm looks luscious and it looks really good and appetizing and, and then chomps on it and it's hooked up. He's at the mercy of the fisherman. Sin is deceitful going in. And it looks good going in, but soon you're trapped with nowhere to go. And sin also traps you on the way out. It corrupts your mind. The sin going out is a little bit like a, a dimmer switch. You know, on a, on, a, on a room where you have a switch and you turn it down, every time you sin, you kind of just turn the light down and you turn it down and you turn it down and you turn it down. And some people can be so buried in their sin that the light is all the way down. There's no light. You're walking in darkness. The greatest example of this is the first sin of our parents, Adam and Eve. Satan engaged Eve in a little conversation about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right in there in the middle of the garden. And Satan said, did God really say you can't eat of that? And she said, well, we can eat of any tree except for that one. And went back and forth. And then he began to tempt her with false ideas. And he began to make the, the fruit look more attractive than it ever had been before. And Eve saw the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. And it was desirable to make one wise. She took from the fruit and ate and gave it to her husband with her. See, sin was attractive going in. It was a, a desire. It was a, a delight. Eve would never have taken it if it looked ugly, if it was undesirable to her. No, it was desirable, and that's how sin always is. It's a desire. And their eyes were open then on the other side to realize things they'd never seen before. Though their eyes were opened, actually they were darkened in their sin. They saw their own nakedness. They saw the fear of God their minds were darkened in their sin. And rather confessing their sin, they hid from God because they're afraid from Him. The result is a great curse placed upon their lives and upon ours as well. She sins a deceiver. Jealousy caused Cain to kill his brother. Fear caused Abraham to lie. Pride caused Saul to offer forbidden sacrifice. Adultery caused David to commit murder. And if you've ever been around those who were trapped in their sin, it's really amazing to see how they think. I've witnessed people lying because of their sin. Right? They sin and then they lie to cover it up. I've witnessed outbursts of anger when sin was confronted. I've witnessed people turning their backs on those who love them because of their sin. I've witnessed people destroying their lives because of their sin. In the case of the original readers, there were some who were being deceived to return to their old ways of religion. Rather than looking and embracing and continuing to hold on to, to Jesus, they'd come into believing community. They'd heard about Him, thought about Him. They said, nah, don't want that. And they went back to their sacrifices. And they went back to their priests. And they went back to their rituals. And they went back to their feasts. And, and really, in, in light of the greatness of Jesus that the author of Hebrews is going to put together for us, Jesus is better than anything. It really makes no sense that they abandon those things. But sin is deceitful, and you need to know that. It's a deceitful thing. So comes the question here. How can I escape the deceitfulness of sin and the hardness of heart? 
it comes in the first half. We have the command and the reason, right? There's a connection there. Look at the logic. Encourage one another day after day, as long as you're still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So do this so that this, right? Encourage one another so that you won't be hardened. The preventative medicine for preventing spiritual heart disease is, catch this, mutual encouragement. It's me encouraging you. It's you encouraging me. And, and as I'm encouraged, my faith is strengthened. I'm empowered to press on. And as you are encouraged, your faith is strengthened and you are empowered to press on as well. And we're protected, both you and me, from the hardness of heart that comes with the deceitfulness of sin. And these are preventative measures. You know, people take preventative drugs to help them in difficult situations. People take Dramamine to help them thwart seasickness before getting on the boat. Take a little bit of Dramamine. People take lysine to help prevent cold sores. People take Claritin to help with the allergies in the air. The pollen is around. And here's the preventative drug for preventing hardness of heart is mutual encouragement. Just like my father eats his oatmeal, like he exercises, takes his aspirin, keeps his weight under control, so also encouragement is the pill we need to take. It's the way we need to live. Here, I wanted to show you a couple things here in these, in these verses. And, and then we'll put it all together, right? Verse 13. I hope you see how others-centered this is. This, this command comes to all of you, it comes to brethren, so that you can encourage others in the body as well. So it's for Jody to help Betty. And it's for Lance to help Chuck. And it's for Phil to help Dirk. It's, it's encouraged. The, the command here is for you to help prevent the hardness of someone else's heart. You see that? In, in other words, it's not so much a call for you to do something to prevent your own hardness of heart, though it is that. It's more of a, an emphasis upon all of you helping everyone else so that they don't have hardness of heart. That's a surprising thing about this text. It's not about you guarding your own heart. It's about you guarding the hearts of others. Now, it, it comes back. okay? But that is one observation. My, my second observation is this. There's an, important, there's an importance for your soul to be encouraged. Receiving encouragement from others is a means of keeping your own heart soft. My father eats oatmeal to keep the cholesterol levels low so his arteries don't harden. And you have need of encouragement to keep your heart soft to the things of God. This is a call against Lone Ranger Christianity. It's against seclusion because it doesn't work. We need the encouragements of others. And this comes when you mix and mingle with others. Another observation here. Just look at, the, look at the emphasis upon time. Verse 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today. Today. Day after day. Just a, a constant encouragement. We, we need encouragement every day. Whenever it's not to, we, we don't need encouragement whenever it's not today. When is it ever not today? 
That's almost like someone who says, I mentioned last week, I'll repent soon. Well, soon what? Soon never comes. And today is always here. And so today we need encouragement. There's enough in this world, in this life, to discourage us. We need encouragement. There's enough in this life that pulls us away from Christ. We need the help of others to keep us believing. There's the pull of the world away from God. There's the pull of the flesh away from God. There's the pull of the devil away from God as he shoots his flaming arrows at us as he prowls around like a roaring lion. We need others to come alongside us to say, keep going. You can do it. You can press on. Jesus is worth it. Keep trusting. Keep believing. There's a reward for you. That's a form of encouragement, but encouragement really goes beyond this. I want you even to think here about what encouragement is. Because that's the key to this word, this text, is what encouragement is. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word with a very broad meaning. The Greek word is parakaleo. It's made up of two words. Para, from which we get the word parallel, and kaleo, from which we get the word call. Parakaleo. Alongside calling. It is calling alongside is what parakaleo is. It's coming alongside somebody and calling them and encouraging them according to the need of the moment. The best picture of this is the coach. The coach is coaching a, a track athlete who's running the 1,500 meter race four times around the track. And before the start of the race, coach comes alongside the runner, sits down, lays a game plan. So, okay, now, who's competing in the race? What kind of times do they have? What's your personal best? Is, is winning... Is winning a possibility or shall we just shoot for a personal time? What, what should we do? In this case, encouragement comes just, just thinking through things. And then the coach says this, if, if you set your mind to it, I, I think you can win the race. There's a parakaleo, an encouragement to believe. And then, the, you know what, I think I can win this. You know, and then goes to starting blocks thinking that there's a chance to win the race. And, and then during the race, if the, the, the runner comes around each lap, the, the coach is there on the infield and able to, to shout out instructions coming alongside for about 10 meters or so before the, the runner runs completely around the track. And so during the first lap, the runner's ahead of the field. And, and the coach says, keep going. You can do it. You can do it. You're keeping good pace. You know, as it goes on, and the, the runner's ready just to encourage by that just to keep going, thinking there's a chance for victory. The second lap, the runner's passed and now is in third place about 10 meters off, off the front and uh, running a little bit slower than they thought. That second lap was pretty slow. and So at this point, the coming alongside maybe more rebuke. Come on, pick it up. You're slow. You've got to go faster. You know, so, oh, you know, here's my coach. said, I'm slow. I'm slow on that run. I know I can run faster because I've run faster before. And so as encouragement, I've done it before. I can do it again. That's, that's encouragement to press on, to pick it up. Now suppose after the third lap, the runner is about 100 yards behind. His legs are burning. Everything within him is crying stop. His lungs are hurting. He's ready to quit. But there's a chance for a personal best in the third place for bronze. And so the coach says, says, keep going. Don't worry about catching up, but you're on pace for a personal best. Keep going. And so he keeps running. This, this coach is parakaleoing the, the runner. And, and even though he's pain in his chest, and even though his lungs are burning, even though his legs are like on fire, and even though he's fatigued, he's a chance for personal best. That guy's pushing me. I can do it. I get the bronze. I can stand on there with the... And he's got this, this goal. He's pressing on and, and running for. And now suppose he's on the home stretch. He's, 
He's back there about 100 yards. He's trying to kick at the end, and he's running, and he, he comes up lame and pulls a hammy and, and kind of slowly goes to the ground. The, the coach sees him limping and, and knows that, that he can limp to the finish line, and so he yells out from 50 yards away, Come on! Finish the race! I know you can do it! Uh, just limp! We didn't come all this way to have you not finish the race. Come on, finish the race. And so, so here he goes. He limps to the finish line. Coach comes around and puts his arm around and says, I'm proud of you. You didn't just lay there on the track. You finished. You ran a good race. We'll get him next time. And then after the race, the runner's sitting down. He's looking at his leg. He says, you know, that's a tough field. They, they deserve to win, but you gave it a good try. You see what that coach is doing? He's parokaleoing his runner to get the best out of his runner. In every instance, the coach tried to discern what the runner needed. At one point, he needed a rebuke. Get going! Come on, you go faster. Another point, he needed comforting. A call just to keep going through the pain. And then finally, even in losing the race, he just needed flat-out comfort. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. Different things for different people, what they need, various times. And that's the manifold meaning of this word encourage. It's, it's used in all of these different ways throughout the Scriptures. And it, it's not always even just taying, saying and exhorting things to others. There can be a form of encouragement that comes a different way. I think Toby Mitchell, Toby, is she? She's teaching Sunday's children's class, children's church, Toby is. So she's not here, but... She came to our house yesterday, took time to help her daughters with their hair. She just talked about what God's doing in their lives, the life of their family. And Yvonne just told me how she was just so encouraged by just Toby coming and being in her presence. Not like Toby encouraged Yvonne to anything, just, just shared her life with us. Shared her life with Yvonne. That was a great encouragement. You can do that as you encourage others. You can, um, just being there, just talking about God can encourage others to press on as well. Yvonne and I also were talking last night a little bit about how even if you're in the process of encouraging other people, you yourself often get encouraged. So it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's hard not to be encouraged when you are encouraging someone else. If you're telling someone what you appreciate about them or how God's working in their life, it, it's hard not to be encouraged by seeing what God is doing in their life. And so the, the dynamics of what takes place at a church with, with people just being together and and uh, the, the dynamics of encouraging and lifting each other up and building each other and giving the word for a moment and letting no unclean thing proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as edification. It's very difficult to understand what's going on, but one of the fruits is this, is it will help us be hardened from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin as we encourage one another, as we open our mouths and give a timely word. As Proverbs 15, verse 23 says, How delightful is a timely word. And we ought to be those who say, I want that timely word to give to somebody, to delight them. Okay. Now let's step back from verse 13 a little bit and think about this cure. I've made some observations. Talked about how it's for others. Talked about how it's in community. Talked about how it's every day. Talked about what encouragement is. But let's, let's step back from this. I want to draw some implications from this. If you want to be cured of spiritual heart disease, if you want to take preventative medicine for spiritual heart disease, first of all, it means you need to be around a group of people who can encourage you. You need to be there. 
You need to find a group of people that's going to encourage you. Second, it means that you need a group of people who you can encourage. If you're going to fulfill this command, you need to be around a group of people who you yourself can encourage. Third, it means you need to have some constant, intimate contact with people so you know how to encourage them. It's the importance of community. I've heard John Piper talk about how sanctification is a community project. Is that good? The the path to growth in Christ is a community project. It doesn't just happen on your own. Everybody kind of doing their own thing. It happens in community with one another. C.J. Mahaney wrote this book on humility. It's a great book. I'm sure we have it in the library. If we not, I'll I'll put this copy in the library because it needs to be in the library. Um, He talks about this passage. I just want to read these two pages for you. He says, We are told in Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, Take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then C.J. says this, Appropriate and timely words that edify will very often include words that exhort, words that help others guard against sin. And we're to speak in this way every day. It's to be continual, not occasional, because sin is active continually, not occasionally. As we do, we're first and foremost guarding the authority and primacy of God's Word and the importance of obedience to God's Word. That's a description of biblical accountability. We aren't accountable first and foremost to each other, but to God. As we guard each other's hearts from the deceitfulness of sin, we're seeking to guard the importance of God's Word because we're ultimately accountable to Him. In this context, the practice of guarding each other is clearly a biblical practice. It's a gift from God a vital means of experiencing His grace for protection from the deceitfulness of sin. It's also, he says, very interpersonal. We are to exhort one another every day, the Hebrews passage says. This passage is not describing the activity of preaching. I don't want to minimize the importance of preaching or pastoral ministry. Preaching and pastoral ministry are not optional but essential. And if preaching and pastoral ministry are effective, the result will be a church where believers are guarding one another's hearts in a crucial relational interaction and involvement with each other in light of the presence, influence, and deceitfulness of sin, guarding is personal. In sacred scripture, God doesn't simply describe our root problem. He gives us a practice for overcoming it. In this passage, he's telling us, quote, as your father, I want to protect you from the deceitfulness of sin and its hardening effects. So by my grace... I've designed my church and provided this practice of each of you speaking up to guard one another. We need that help and we need it every day, is what he says. And so my question to you is this, and it will be answered differently by all of you. Do you have a group of people in your life? Do you have a people, group of people around you who encourage you? Do you have a group of people around you who you can encourage so they don't slip, fall away? Do you have people around you who can carry your burdens for you 
And how often do you contact these people? Daily? Now for some of you, I know the answer is this. Yes, I have many people like this in my life. In fact, as I look around the room here, right? you should look around. Those in front, you can turn back and, and look if you want. That's okay. But only for a moment. So I, I look around. I can, I can tell the ways. I've been encouraged by many of the people here in this room. I, I can tell you ways in which I have encouraged them. I, I see them on Sunday mornings. It's my, my constant diet, my, my oatmeal here on Sunday mornings. In fact, I... Um, I eat with them every month at Potluck. So I'm always here. Just once a month, I'm eating with these people. Just an opportunity just to share with them. I see many of them on Sunday nights involved in family night. On Wednesday night, involved in a WANA program, see that, or I meet with some fathers and sons. Uh, sometimes Friday nights, even, we get together. Har- you know, hardly a week goes by where I don't gather on some other occasion with the people here. Maybe there's some other people outside of this church even who you gather with consistently, Christian believers, to help build you up. I can think of my, my realm of friends. And, and for many of you, you have this. You have this dynamic and you are clearly obeying what Hebrews 3.13 says. And you should be encouraged this morning. You are taking preventative medicine. You are having your oatmeal several times a week. Sometimes daily having your oatmeal. You're staying away from your fats. You're going soft in your salt and your prognosis is good. Now, for others of you, the answer to my question might go like this. Yeah, I've, I've got friends like this. Well, maybe, maybe not many. You know, I'm not sure I have any friends like this. Oh, I do come to Rock Valley Bible Church. I'm here at almost every Sunday. But I leave early and don't really talk to people. So I don't really encourage people. I'm not really encouraged by them. In fact, I look around here. I'm not... Sure, I really know very many people here. I'm never with believers during the week. If this is you, I'm just telling you, you're in danger of developing a hard heart. When you don't have others around you to encourage you when you're weak, you're in danger. When you don't have others to carry your burdens, you're in danger. When you need a rebuke, there's not going to be anyone to rebuke you, help you. It's like you're eating Mr. Steak every day. Oh, except on Sunday mornings when I have my oatmeal. But throughout the week, with no contact with other believers in this circle who you're going to encourage and be encouraged by, you're filling your hearts with greasy food, lots of salt, calcification they're developing in the arteries, and your prognosis isn't good. I can't guarantee your future, but I can guarantee you this. The stakes are a lot higher than any of us think. So we come to verse 14 next week. We're going to see here that eternity is at stake. Verse 14 says, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our shirts firm until the end. And I'm so glad for this verse. Because even in all the talking about falling away, this one here says this, if you are generally partakers in Christ, you will hold fast to the end. How will you hold fast to the end? You'll hold fast by being around a believing community to help build you up. But if you distance yourself from the believing community, and I see it time and time again, those who engage themselves in sin, they, they distance themselves 
from the believing community. And it's only the, the preventative medicine beforehand that's going to help that community go after them and help them so they don't drift away and be lost. Well, as I close my message, I, I want for you to turn over to chapter 10. See, as mutual encouragement doesn't merely just happen. It, it requires a bit of thought. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. It says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking your own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you see this thought coming here in verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. It is thinking actively about how I might consider someone else to do good deeds. I, I, I'm thinking about Kerry Witter. How can, I, how can I encourage him to do good deeds? Right? And I'm thinking about Paul Peterson. How, how can I encourage him to do good deeds? Right? Talk about Mia Clay. How can I encourage her to do good needs, deeds? It's just thinking how you can do that. And there are various different ways. You can be covert. You can be forthright. You can bring somebody along doing something. You can encourage them. Call them on the phone. You can talk. But somehow encouraging them, you're thinking about how you can stimulate one to love and good deeds because that's what the assembling is. And, and then verse 25, not forsaking our so own assembling together as is the habit of some. There were some here in the time of the writer of the Hebrews who were forsaking their assembling together. And they, they weren't gathering together with the believers and they were off on their own. As we see in Hebrews 3.13, they placed themselves in a perilous situation. But rather than forsaking our own assembling, we, we assemble together. You know, I see Sunday morning church, Rock Valley Bible Church, yes, a time of feeding, yes, a time of spiritual nourishment and encouragement, but it is a time just to gather together so that you can figure out even how you can encourage other people during the weeks so that ministry would go on far beyond the walls of our cafeteria here. But it would happen all the time as you're, you're with others, you're in groups, you're meeting, you're encouraging others. Because when you don't assemble together... You're not encouraging one another, verse 25. And there is some urgency, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near, we're one step closer to the return of Christ than we were yesterday. One day closer, one day closer, and we're always walking towards that day. As we see that day drawing near, there is an urgency, and it takes time and thought, and there is purpose involved in this. I'll say this, at Rock Valley Bible Church, we've had small groups in the past to foster this. We call them flocks or small groups. With family nights on Sunday nights, you know, we, we've kind of stopped several of those, though one is still meeting up at the Reed's house. And, by the way, the vast majority of people who came to those are coming to Sunday nights as well. So it's not like... A lot. There are a few who have been excluded. And um, my heart feels for some of those just because they're older. Um, think of Peterson's and Garden's kind of been excluded from that. Jerry a little bit as well without family. But we have had a group that meets at the Reed's house and um, I tell you, that has been some of the most encouraging small group times I've, I've had. You think so, Reeds? It's been very encouraging. Who else has been going to that? Milton's have some. Um, who else is it? The Witters have been to that. It just, we, we, here's what we've done at that, that small group. We just said, you know, what does true fellowship look like? We've really been, bat we've really been talking about that. And, and from there, there's been some fruit that's been fostered and developed. And, and I'd say, maybe you, maybe you feel excluded, want to be involved in something. Well, talk to me. We'll, we'll maybe start something else. But, 
But I just want to start something and have only some people come. And not. I just want to say, you know what? I need to be involved in this. I want to be engaged. Just come and talk with me and we'll figure out something. Whether I have time to do that or someone else has time to do that, we'll just get together. We're, we're constantly together outside beyond just Sunday mornings to help that. Because it is important to gather together to encourage one another so that we press on and not fall away. Well, one of the things we do do as a church is a, it's a pattern of our life to encourage each other is by celebrating the Lord's Supper, which we're, again we're going to do today. It's an opportunity for us to gather, again reflect upon Christ where, where our whole hope and source of strength comes from. I thought appropriate, we are right here in Hebrews 10, to just look at some passages here as we think about the, the cross of Christ, as we eat the bread and drink of the cup to remember again what Christ has done for us. Right here in Hebrews 10, verse 19. It says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. She has a cause and effect here. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. What an amazing thing it is. The, the priests of the old covenant would never enter the holy place apart from blood of a lamb. And now we have opportunity to enter the, the holy of holies, the heavenly holy of holies, with confidence because we got the blood of Christ on our side that was shed by us, by Him, for us. See, it was a new and living way, as verse 20 says, which He inaugurated for us. When Jesus died upon the cross, His blood was shed so that we can enter into the very presence of God in full assurance of faith. And it is interesting here, even, that we have our hearts sprinkled clean, verse 22, from an evil conscience. He was talking again about our hearts that they're in the blood of Christ. We can come with a sincere heart because we know, not, not that our heart is so pure and great all the time, but, but because our heart's been sprinkled clean with the blood of Jesus. And that's really what we are celebrating as we take the bread and eat the cup. It's really reflecting upon everything that Christ has done for us so that we can come in to His presence with pure hearts and pure minds because we have a sincere heart sprinkled clean in the the blood of Christ. And, as verse 23 says, we, we hold fast that confession without wavering, for he who promises faithful. Paul, when he wrote about the, uh, the Lord's Supper, one of the things he said, he says, as often as you eat this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And here's it says in verse 23 that we are holding fast the confession of our hope. We are confessing, we are holding fast to that until he comes. So if you're a believer in Christ, trusting in the Lord, Take the bread, take the cup and drink with us. It's a way of, of, of receiving encouragement from the Lord. But if your heart is hard and you're unrepentant about it and you're just saying, no, I don't, I don't care for this, this is not where I am, then let it pass. It's not for you because the Scriptures say that we need to eat of the bread, drink of the cup in a worthy manner. And a worthy manner means this. I'm, I'm just believing, God. I'm just trusting you for your promises. And you know what? Your heart might be weak. Y- your faith might be small but even just saying, God, this is where my trust is. I know that your loving kindness is better than life, and this is where my hope is. 
If that's you, then that's the one that God wants to drink. He says, he who thirsts, take from the river of life without cost. That's what this is. It's without cost. It's a, it's a coming and remembering the, the life of Christ. How about we bow our heads, spend a few moments just, just preparing your hearts to celebrate the, the Lord's Supper, which is a, a preview of the great marriage supper of the Lamb. When all the saints from all time who have all believed and trusted in Christ will gather together there. It's a picture of what that is. Maybe some sins have come to mind. Maybe you have neglected the assembling together. Maybe you have been trying to live Lone Ranger Christianity. I would encourage you to repent from that and realize there's an importance in the community for your own soul. Maybe there aren't people around you and you need people around you. Plead to the Lord. Say, God, I want that. God will be faithful to bring that. Maybe there's ways in which you've seen hardness of heart in your own heart this week. Reflecting upon last week and the hardness of the Israelites. Grumbling, complaining. Perhaps you need to repent of those things. Confess them to the Lord. Realize there's really no, no need to complain in light of all the blessings we, He has given us. Philippians 2 says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. So we can prove ourselves to be holy and blameless, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Maybe God's convicting you of a hardness of heart in another area. Maybe there's a constant sin that you're holding on to. Plead for your repent right now. Jesus came and spoke to the churches in Revelation. It was always, therefore, re- repent, or else I will come and make war with you with the sword of my mouth. Therefore, repent, or else you'll be cast upon a bed of sickness. Remember from where you've fallen, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. I just call you to repent and turn from your hardness. You say, I don't have enough strength in myself. I say, you're right. Plead God, because even as we read, John 15, I can do nothing apart from Him. Even the grace to persevere is not in your own self. It's in Him. That's why we need to always look to Him. So confess your sin. Give it to the Lord. Plead the, the cross of Christ. Realize that's your only hope. Your only hope in this age and in the age to come. So Lord, I think as I have opened these two verses for us and pressed their application, I pray that you would work in our hearts. That we be those who stay near the cross and are encouraged by others to be near there as well. So Lord, I pray that you would commune with us. May your presence be among us in a special way that's not when we're in our homes, when we're by ourselves. May the power of your presence come and help us this morning. Lord, may we rejoice in the cross of Christ in in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Andy's going to lead us in some songs. You can take the bread and hold it. We'll eat together. Take the cup.